standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here. Because Friday is International Women's Day, we're doing things a bit differently this week. We've got six podcasts for you covering the arts, science, sport and history, with one being released every day up until Saturday. We talked to writer Lisa Holdsworth about her new play, about the troubled life of playwright Andrea Dunbar. We host a round table with the Royal Society of Chemistry. We talk 100 years of women in the police with author and former police officer Jennifer Reese. We talked to Carla Williams about her production company, Ms. Mono. And we talked to Jill Scott, Manchester City and England midfielder, about the forthcoming Women's World Cup, among other things. So, loads to enjoy there. If you've got time, you should listen to them all. But before that, here's a bit more about the episode you found yourself listening to now. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this, our fifth International Women's Day special episode. And if you're listening on Friday, happy International Women's Day to you. In this episode, Hannah and I chat to Jennifer Reese, former police officer and co-writer of the new book, Voices from the Blue, celebrating 100 years of women in the Metropolitan Police. We talk about the first intake of birds on the beat, institutionalised sexism and just how accurate Luther really is. Hope you enjoy. Hello, Jen here to introduce you to another International Women's Day special. In this episode, Hannah and I had a chat with Jennifer Reese, co-author of Voices from the Blue, The Real Lives of Police Women, celebrating 100 years of women in the Metropolitan Police. We talked to her about her own experience as a policewoman, about what it's like for women in the Met now and what it was like for women in the Met historically, and about where you put your truncheon. No, really. Hope you enjoy. We're joined by Jennifer Reese, former police officer and scenes of crime officer, and now the author of new book, Voices from the Blue, The Real Lives of Policewomen. I feel like we should say, you know, for the purposes of the tape, also in the room (laughs) (laughs) is me, (laughs) Hannah. So your book has just been published in February. Yes, And so we had been under the illusion that the 100-year anniversary of Women in the Met was in fact last year. But that's not strictly speaking true, is it? No, they were recruited in November uh, 1918, but they didn't actually hit the streets until 1919, 17th of February 1919. That was the day that they were sort of marched out to Harrods to get their uniform. As they did in those days. To Harrods. Harrods. Yes, Harrods was where they got their uniforms. Mrs Stanley must have had a deal with them, I expect. (laughs) But uh, she was in charge of all the 20, 20 20-odd women. It was supposed to be a complement of 110, but there was only 20 at the very beginning that were recruited. And why was that? Was that because there wasn't enough interest? I think they were quite specific on, on who they would take. They had to be a certain age, although some of the very first women were actually married with children, which then they changed, and you couldn't be in the job if you were married or got married, and you couldn't have children if you were in the job. So, you know, they were sort of a little bit more lax then, post-war, than it became between the wars. Mm. But When all the men were back, I yes, guess. Yes, yes. So when did that actually change? When oh, did they start allowing married women? 1938-ish, 39. But I know that they brought married women, because they were desperate for women, 
during the war because obviously the men course, yeah. in the Second World War, they were desperate to get women in and the women in the job fought to get more women in and it sort of was taken from there. What do we know about those first 20 recruits back in 1918? I was looking through a few papers that I, I had got from the Women Police Archives and they ranged sort of between 25 to 38. That was the age range that they would take them. One thing that really surprised me, because I'm tall for my generation, but they had five foot teners, women who were five foot ten and five foot ten and a half, and it wasn't just the one. And that really surprised me. For that generation, I always thought that even the men were short. Yeah. So the women being five foot ten. I mean, that's pretty tall for now. Even. Yeah, that was remarkable. I mean, I've always been under the impression that I that I would never be tall enough to be a police officer. Oh, you are now. I'm I'm five foot one. You can be any height oh, you want to you? be. Yes. Surely that's discriminatory. That's exactly what they said when the you know the d- discriminatory acts came in because at one time five foot four was the minimum height for women and five foot eight minimum for men within the Met. The city police were different. The men had to be six footers. Now you can't discriminate. What is the difference between the city police and the metropolitan police? Because I always kind of thought the city police would just sort of, it, it was a bit of a nicer job, not as much hard graft. Is that um, is that wrong? Yes and no. I mean, when I was in, you, I was on H, which was in the east end of London, so we boarded the city. And the, the city, uh, certainly at night, they used to get bored sideways mm. because there was no action at night. So if they heard a shout come up over the, the main radio for a call on our ground or on City Road's ground, where this area, they would try and beat you to it because they were so bored. (laughs) I suppose now you've got all those Essex boys and girls coming into Shoreditch of a Friday night. It's going to keep you a bit more busy. That's Shoreditch still borders um, the Met and the city. You know, you've got the square mile of the city. That's where the money was. So they created their own police force separate to the Met. So when did you join? I joined in 1969. So, yes, my career is now history. (laughs) And you were there for five years, and in the time that you were there, women were actually in a separate unit, is that right? We were a totally separate department. Like you would have CID, Mounted Branch, we were totally separate. We were dealt with, our hierarchy were women police only, although we would go to police stations um, where I was, we had a woman inspector and a woman sergeant, but a lot of stations didn't. When I transferred out to another station, there was no hierarchy there for me, so I would come under the male officers as such. So could you not be in CID in 1969 if you're a woman? You could. You did get transferred to the CID, the very first woman CID officer, Lillian Wiles. She was the first CID officer. So, yes, you do get them, but you still came under the hierarchy of the women police and the CID. But in the early, early days, they were only there for taking statements and dealing with women. I'd like to hear a bit more about how you were sort of treated differently, othered by the police force kept separately from your male colleagues. Now, this might not be true, but I know it in Happy Valley... And I trust, <laughs> I trust Sally Wayne, right, implicitly. Yeah. They have a scene in which they're reminiscing about the old days in the police. And they say that they weren't given a truncheon in the old days, but they oh, were no. given a handbag. When I joined in 69, the Norman Hartnell model uniform yeah. came out. She, he was the Queen's couturier. And we had his uniform, which had good parts to it and awful parts to it. But we were given a handbag. But we, had, <laughs> we weren't allowed to have a truncheon. The truncheons were, were going to be too big for the handbag anyway. The men's truncheons were much bigger. 
We eventually got a small one to put in our handbags and then when we were allowed to wear trousers, which was in the 80s, they gave us a truncheon pocket so we could put a truncheon in the pocket. I feel like there's a joke here somewhere, a, v- a vaguely smutty one, but I will um, There is. Yeah. Size matters. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, just the very thought of having to do anything that you need to do in the police force in a skirt is quite with amazing. Handbag. With a handbag. Like running for the bus with a handbag is <laughs> challenging enough. I mean, I, where I was on H Division, which was Lemon Street, down near Cable Street, Wapping, that area. Mm. I was a woman in uniform, and that made me feel safe. And I know that's the change in times. Now, I don't think... If you were a woman in uniform going down a dark alley, you wouldn't feel safe at all. But in those days, they did respect women, and they respected the uniform. But having said that, we weren't allowed outside after 10 o'clock at night on our own. Wow. We had to either go around in a car if we were night duty or stay in the office. Well, there is a certain logic to it. I mean, it might... Women generally are less safe on the street than men. I know, but you would think in a police uniform, as you say, that would give you a bit of, you know... Sadly, one of the contributors was actually raped. She wasn't in uniform. She'd gone to a a party, and she'd been dealing with sexual offences, a young girl who'd been assaulted, etc. And the family was so grateful to her, they invited her to the girl's birthday. And on her way back from there, she was attacked, and she could never go back. She resigned after that. She couldn't face going into work. It didn't go to court, and she said she was so pleased it didn't go to court, which sounds awful these days, because we, we encourage women, you know, to go to court, because these people shouldn't get away with it. Yeah. But she said, I didn't want my colleagues having to deal with Mm. my case. I mean, you sort of touched on it there a little bit about, you know, the modern kind of standards in terms of how we deal with women who are victims of crime. And that must have come a long way since since back in the day. How much has that changed and how much further do we have to go? You hear stories about women who report crimes to the police and they're told, you know, sexual offences particularly, and the police will actually say to them, you know, if this goes to court, this is going to be really an unpleasant experience for you. Do you want to pursue it? Now you can be behind a screen so you don't have to see the offender. I mean, at one time it was awful. There's a definition. There's relationship rape and there's a stranger rape. Stranger rape was always dealt with far more stringently, if you like, because it was it was an unknown person on an unknown person. Whereas with a relationship rape, either you've met them in a pub and you've been chatting with them, or it's your husband, or it's your ex-partner, or some you, you, somebody that you know, that had been in the past dealt with fairly poorly. You know, and a woman had to continually prove that she had been attacked, that she hadn't said yes. Now we we had Operation Sapphire, or the Sapphire system, which started in 2001, where we believed everything the woman said until such time in the investigation that proved that she was lying. And and it has been proved that some people have, for various reasons, not totally told the truth. But we will believe them, we will deal with them, and we will help them as much as we can. But they still had to go to court and give evidence. And uh, we had the ridiculous situation at one point where the offender who decided that they were going to defend themselves could then interview the woman and ask her questions in court. 
Well, that's, that's a double rape as far as I'm concerned. So that can no longer happen. That won't happen anymore. Women are being protected as they should be. Why should we be told you can't wear this, you can't do that? Because you could be raped. Yeah. So the police service has obviously changed over the years, over yes. the years you've known it. And now we have a position where we actually have female officers that are somewhere close to household names like Cressida Dick, who yes. you have spoken to in this book. In the same way that there remains a debate about whether the police force is institutionally racist, which has been something that's come up over and over again, how do you think the police force is doing on institutionalised sexism? I know Cressida is very keen to increase the the ratio of women to men within the force. She will admit we are not the best force in the country. There are other forces that are better than us on that ratio. As far as sexism is concerned, I think they they do come down very strongly. I mean, when I was in in 69, I was never treated in any way that I would consider sexist. And yet in the book, you will see that so many women were treated really poorly and I'm not saying that it still doesn't exist but it is being dealt with and the majority of people will clamp down on it you're never going to eradicate it look at me too and you think that we've grown up and we've got better we haven't and what you've got to realize is all police officers where do they come from they come from society so they bring all the worst and the best that society can give I expect And we should all expect our police officers to be better than us, if you know what I mean. But they're not, and they won't be. Uh, Many will be. My son-in-law is a detective constable, and I would trust... Well, I trusted him with my daughter, so I would certainly (laughs) trust him. (laughs) So, no, there, there are so many who are really, really good, but you get the odd few in the barrel that you're going to get anywhere, absolutely anywhere in any walk of life, because... We are members of the public too when we're not on duty. Yeah. And going back to the thing that you said about having uh, increasing the number of police officers, it's a, t- it's a twofold problem and it happens across like in every industry and in business or whatever. Firstly, you have to attract women. Secondly, you have to be able to hang on yes. to women. Now, you had a career break, didn't you? Was it yes. easy to go back into? No, it wasn't as such. Because I had very young children when I was looking to go back in, you sort of have to prove that you've got childcare. So that's why I went through and became a scenes of crime officer. My husband at the time was a teacher. We met when we were in the police. He was a police officer. I was a police officer. But then he went into teaching. So I could could prove I had childcare. And that's when I got the job as a scenes of crime officer. Would that still be the case now? That seems mad to me that you had to actually prove... That you have no, childcare. It's very, very different. Myself and other colleagues that I worked with left when you, when we had our children, because there was nothing for us. There was no part time, no nothing. Well, I know even before Cressida, and, and she is very, very keen to make sure that women with children get as many chances. But even women who have children will say that sometimes you have to make a choice. It's very, very difficult to go up the ranks if you have children because of childcare, etc., and studying, etc., etc., which men don't have to worry about even today, unless you've got a house husband. You know, a woman is not going to be able to study the same way if they've got children as, as men can. But, as I say, Cressida is very, very keen to make as many changes and make it as easy as possible. Bearing in mind, and speaking to other senior women, yes, you will do as much as you can to help women with children, 
But the women with children have to understand that we are a 24-7 service. And being 24-7, they have to make a commitment to fulfil a role within that 24-7 service. Otherwise, it puts a burden on other officers. So it's, it's a balancing game. And I'm not saying we're there, and I'm sure Cressida won't agree that we're there. But we, we are getting there. there people of London and the surrounding areas. Anyone who's been paying attention will know that we've moved to a new London venue, King's Place, and a super venue it is too. We'll be back there on April the 18th with Helen Lederer and again on May the 19th when we'll be chatting to she of Best Newcomer nomination at last year's Edinburgh Fringe, Sindhu V, and the legendary Catherine Tate. Am I bothered though? Actually, yes. Yes, I am. More info and indeed tickets can be found at sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. Can I ask what advice you'd give to a woman who was looking to enter the police service, is what oh. we say now, isn't it? The police service. I don't know. Yeah, when I joined... Well, you don't take it force was, anymore. No, no, you not? No. no, when I joined, it was a police force. When I came back as a scenes of crime officer in 1983, it was a service. It is a service, but we also enforce the law. So it, it's, you know, it, it's sort of a mix, isn't yeah. it, really? It's a very different world now, a very different world. It's a much harder world. Because of finances, the cutbacks within mm. the police force are huge. So I think there's a huge burden on all police officers, male and female, to perform the same role with fewer people. Whilst I would say it, I loved my service both as a police officer and as a SOCO, and I love the Met. I can't think, for me, there is no other force. The Met is the Met. It's wonderful. But I, I don't know if it's the same anymore. The training isn't the same. Yes, they've got lots of uniform and they can do the same as the men, but if my granddaughter, who's 18, wanted to go into the police, I'd say, do it, you've got to try it. And I hope you really, really love it as I did. But I think you've really got to want to do it. And, and I'm sure Cressida won't like me for saying this, but it's it's a hard life. It's a harder life now, I think. There are far more restrictions. But once you're in, it's a way of life. Every job has its own jargon, its own sense of humour. And our sense of humour is very dark. It <laughs> yeah, has well, to we're be. journalists, so, yeah. Well, yeah. That's, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I've seen some of that. <laughs> when did women stop working in their own different unit that came in during integration when equal pay came in because uh, women had been fighting for equal pay for doing the same job and so when the police decided in 1973 that they that would come in they couldn't keep us as a separate women's department so they integrated us onto reliefs which was good in one way and poor in another, because they didn't take you into account. We had different training to the men. We had the same training as the men, and then we had extra training to deal with women and children. Mm. And then when we were integrated, that was lost. A lot of women, I think, initially felt lost. I was fortunate, unfortunate, that I left when, I, when my daughter was born, when integration took place. So I, I missed that, and, I, and some loved it, some absolutely hated it and found it very difficult, that transition, because there was no extra training. One day you were Women Police Department, the next day you were on a relief expecting to go out and do all sorts that we had been trained to do, but we'd never used, mm. really, not used that training in the same way the men had. So 
it was a difficult transition, but others embraced it. So it, it comes down to personalities and where you worked as well. So what did the crime scene officer do? What was, oh, the, what was that gosh. role? When I was a police officer, I was transferred to Limehouse, and the very first Suckos were brought in in the, the early 70s. And I met Bernard Lilly, who was an ex-police officer. He had to leave the job because he had an accident where he was injured and couldn't perform the police role. And I saw him working, and I thought, oh, that's an interesting job. And then I heard that they were recruiting. So I applied, and who should be on the board but Bernard Lilly? Uh-huh. And they asked me on the interview, what made you want to become a socko? And I said, you. Uh-huh. <laughs> Couldn't have asked for better, could I, really? And that's how I got into being a socko. But I tell you, it's a wonderful job. Or was. Again, things change. But I loved being a socko. My daughter's a socko. And what does that actually involve? It's um, spraying for fluids. That's all of that. You well, know when they're in the white suits? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like assessing the crime scene, is it? A lot of it is. I mean, uh, my bread and butter were, were going to burglaries. You're a detective. You're looking to see where they've come in where they've gone out, looking for fingerprints, looking for DNA. When I first started... I was going to say, that must have changed phenomenally. Oh, gosh. In 1983, you could take blood, but it had to be the size of a a 10 pence piece to be useful in analysis. And then it was only... You only had the ABO system, you know, uh, the blood group system, and whether you were a secretor, where you secreted your blood group in your saliva or body fluids. So you could be a secretor or a non-secretor. It was good, but nowhere near as good as DNA. I mean, so I wonder anything ever got solved. I mean, if you look at... That's because we were good. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. But no, I mean, before, before those days. I mean, if you look at something like the Ipswich murders, I mean, that was just a piece of DNA they stumbled upon. Up until that point, they had literally no idea who they were looking Mm. for, none whatsoever. And I don't know if that had happened 40 years ago, whether they would ever have found who that was. If you look at, like, Stephen Lawrence, for example, I mean, that's all within my lifetime as well. The change in what you can use and that's taken place in that time is phenomenal. DNA has become almost its own worst enemy all the techniques are now so sensitive that you have to be very careful about Mm. secondary transfers and lots of things my my daughter could tell you far more about it because even in the time since i retired in 2013 to now everything is changing is is moving on you know nothing can stay still as soon as the law finds a way of getting around something so do the villains it's around robin all the time with them I absolutely loved my career. Absolutely loved it. You can't help but talk about a frame of reference, which for most of us is television, films, etc., etc. Now, as I said earlier, I mean, Happy Valley appears to be accurate from from what you said. Can I ask you what you make of female detectives and female police officers on television? Do you have a favourite? Are they a good reflection of women in the service? They have an awful lot of specialists from different fields who will give them advice. So, yes, I can't say that I've, I've watched too many female officers. That I have favourite programmes, and um, those favourite programmes don't have that many female officers in it. I think there's always an exaggeration of what we can do yes. and in the time that we can do it. Yes. I cannot watch CSI 
because I love their plot. The plot line is fabulous. But what they can do, and also I cannot bear that they will go into a crime scene ungloved <laughs> with, with no footwear protectors. <laughs> and, you know, you just it just doesn't happen. And a serious crime scene, which is what's happening in these programs, mm. you're suited. You're logged in, you're logged out. And all your personal protective equipment has to be bagged up, etc. So, but that's not sexy. And they're going to portray something that you're going to want to watch. You're not going to want to watch people putting their gloves on. But So if you're Detective Inspector John Luther and you walk into a, a playground in East London and you lift up a hanky with your pen, would that not happen in real life? It might. No, it might. Because you've got to do an assessment. You've got to assess. But I was in training. I was training detectives as well as scenes of crime officers uh, towards the end of my career. And we'd always say, keep gloves on you. Keep a little stash of gloves on you so if you come across something you put your gloves on and you double glove I'm going to have to rewatch it <laughs> see what but he did there was there was one American program and oh he bent down next to a dead man in a pool of blood and his coat's trailing in the blood oh, I think, no. oh my gosh no sneezed on the victim <laughs> <laughs> Voices from the Blue, which is stories of women in the police force. I mean, presumably you you could have you got enough to write more than one book. Oh my gosh, yes! And I had a meeting. I met with a, a group of other women, all contributors, the other day, and they're telling me more stories. And I said, "Why didn't you tell me these stories before?" <laughs> yeah. But having said that, we were confined to ninety thousand words. Yeah, and. We had about 120, and the, we'd honed that down, so we kept honing down and honing down. But, oh, the stories are just fabulous. The women are fabulous, fabulous women. Brilliant. And that is all good bookshops, I'm assuming. Well, I would certainly hope so. They've certainly <laughs> got them in foils and some water stones. I've been going around and having a look. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. This has been really interesting. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Hannah here. Just so as you know, we've got a load of great interviews coming your way in the coming weeks and months. Jen met the brilliant Jessica Hines to chat about her new film, The Fight. And all three of us went to the set of HBO's Gentleman Jack, I shit you not, and grabbed some time with its creator and director, Sally Wainwright. If you want to make sure you don't miss out on any of these chats with brilliant women, please subscribe, either on Acast or iTunes. Standard issue for all women.